part of this whole cell phone phenomenon we have today with so many cell phones wherever you go is we often get the opportunity to overhear part of a private conversation. You notice that? You're hearing one side of it. Someone's talking to someone else. Sometimes you think they're talking to you, but then you look and they're talking on a cell phone and, and you hear this conversation and you're just hearing one side of it. And there's times for me, maybe this has happened to you, where you're listening and and you can tell that it's an intimate conversation. And you feel a little embarrassed because you know you shouldn't be listening. And yet you feel kind of drawn in. And part of you is wanting to be part of it. Wanting to hear what's going on. Wanting to be part of that relationship. I think this is reflective of what's in our hearts and our culture is that we're a culture that longs for relationship, but we're not very good at it. In fact, in our culture, we have a lot of loneliness, a lot of aches for more intimacy. As you look around and think about how many of us are consumed by trying to get a second-hand kind of intimacy, maybe we don't have that in our relationships, you know, they're not that good or not as close as we'd like, and so... We try to get it secondhand, so some of us read romance novels because we want to enter into that relationship and feel like somehow we're experiencing it too, even though it's secondhand intimacy. Or we watch soap operas and we watch people's lives and we feel like maybe we're sort of part of it even though it's secondhand. Or we watch movies or on and on. We find, try to find ways of finding intimacy even though it's secondhand, but Deep down, if we're really honest, we feel really lonely. We often keep too busy to notice that, but if we ever slow down enough, we find that there's an ache in our souls. I know that's true for me. Sometimes there's an ache that just will not go away. Even though I have a great marriage and some great friendships, there's an ache in us. Dallas Willard put it this way, Loneliness is loose upon the landscape. It haunts the penthouse and the barren apartment, the executive suite and the assembly line, the cocktail bar and the city streets. Loneliness is, as Mother Teresa of Calcutta once said, the leprosy of the modern world. Loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. And again, if we're honest, we're all lepers of loneliness. Why are we so overwhelmed with it, loneliness? Why is that such a part of us? Well, I think we could probably answer that. It's because we were created for more. We were created for a relationship with God, for intimacy with Him. We were designed for that. We were designed for an intimacy with Him that would, goes beyond anything on earth that we can experience here. But then the question is, well, how do we experience that then? How do we know Him in a way that meets the ache in our souls, in our hearts, that drives us so often? How can we experience not a second-hand intimacy with God, but a first-hand intimacy where we are really part of the conversation, not just overhearing it like it sometimes feels when we read the Scriptures or pray? How can we really be part of a personal relationship with Him and not have Him just feel so hidden and absent? all the time. 
Well, I believe that that's Jesus' purpose, is to help us understand what it means to have a first-hand intimacy with our Heavenly Father. As we look at John chapter 17. And in John 17, we'll spend the next two weeks on this prayer that Jesus prays. Again, he's about to go to the cross. In fact, he'll be arrested within a few moments. He's probably praying at this point, either in or very near the Garden of Gethsemane, where Judas brought the mob to arrest him. So he's about to be taken from the disciples. But he prays in their presence. And as we listen to this prayer, as we hear the way that he relates to the Father, as I read it, I feel like I'm kind of on holy ground, as if I'm overhearing a conversation that is so intimate that I'm almost embarrassed to be there. Let's listen to how he prays in the first five verses. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, The time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So as we listen in on this prayer, on this relationship, as we overhear, let's look closely at what Jesus prays. He prays, Father, glorify your Son. Now that sounds a little self-centered, doesn't it? Make me look good, because that's what glorify means. It means to make someone look good. It means to shine the light on them, to reveal what's good, what's glorious, what's wonderful, what's splendorous about who they are. And Jesus says, glorify your son. But notice how he qualifies it. So that, Father, you might be glorified. Jesus knows that the way that the Father will be seen for all he is in His splendor and His glory, is for the Father to shine the light on Him as He goes to the cross. And as Jesus does that, the heart of the Father is revealed through the submission of Jesus as He goes to the cross. So notice what Jesus' heart really is. It's that the Father might look good. It's that the world might look and see who God really is. That's the reason that Jesus was sent, right? To reveal the Father. To help us know Him personally. That's what the universe is all about. God is glorious, but because of our sin, there's this fallenness and this blindness, and we don't understand the Father. And so Jesus cries out because He loves the Father so much. There's such an intimacy there. He says, I want to make you look good, so I'm willing to go to the cross. Glorify me that you might be glorified. Over in chapter 16, verse 14, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And notice he says, He, the Holy Spirit, will bring glory to me, will glorify me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So notice what the intimate relationships are like within the Trinity. 
The Father is glorifying the Son. The Son is glorifying the Father. The Holy Spirit is glorifying Jesus. The Trinity, they're falling over themselves to make one another look good. This is the beauty of real, intimate, personal relationship. Imagine if your relationships were like that. If you were falling all over one another to make one another look good. Well, we'll talk about that next week because he actually calls us for that. He prays for that, that we might have that amongst us. But at this point, you see the Trinity is God so loves within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he experienced such great intimacy that he said, you know what, I want to create people that I might share that intimacy with them. That's his purpose. That's what he's uh, called us to. And, and as, you, as you see the way they treat one another within the Trinity, they glorify one another, they shine the light on one another, they are so excited. It's like two lovers who, who just can't, are, who are bursting with wanting to tell other people how great their lover is. You've seen that commercial perhaps that's been on for a while. It's a couple and they're in a square in Europe somewhere and the man suddenly shouts in front of everybody, I love this woman! (laughs) Well, Jesus is shouting, I love my Father! Look how great He is! And the Father's saying, I love my Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He broke through the heavens three times to declare to the world His love for His Son. And the Holy Spirit's saying, I love Jesus. I love the Father. Look at how great they are. That's how the Father relates within Himself. They're so delighted in one another. What a glimpse of real love, real intimacy. How is the Father glorified? Practically, how does this happen? Well, Jesus says, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. How is He going to glorify the Father at this point? By going to the cross. And by rising from the dead. That shines the light on who God is like nothing else. You know, you look at nature, and you can learn some things about God, about His power, His awesomeness. But nature's pretty cruel, too. You aren't really going to see who God is from that. And the best way to understand who God is, if you really want to understand Him, is look closely at the cross and the resurrection. Because in the cross and resurrection, you see that God is a God of justice who hates sin. He cannot live in its presence. He's holy. He must punish sin. But at the same time, he's a God of love, of mercy, of self-sacrifice, who takes that punishment on himself for our good. He's a God of compassion, of care, who wants us to know him. See, only the cross and resurrection reveal that balance of who God is. And it glorifies God. It shines the light on who He is. You want to know Him in all His glory? Meditate on the cross and resurrection and what it reveals to you about God. Jesus says, Now glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. So that's one way that God is glorified. How else is He? 
Notice verse 2 and 3. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God is glorified when Jesus gives eternal life to us, to his disciples and ultimately to us. That glorifies God. But what is eternal life? How would you define it if you just were going to write it out for me? This is what eternal life is. How would you define it? Well, most of us tend to think of it as kind of a quantity of life. You know, we die and then we enter eternal life and we live forever. But notice in verse 3 how Jesus defines eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know you, Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is a quality of relationship. It's a relationship within the Trinity. So get this. Stick with me now because I think this is really key for us to get. The Father has perfect relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in His Godhead. But he so loves us, he says, what glorifies me is when I hand that off to you so that no longer are you second-hand people having second-hand intimacy, but rather you can enter into the conversation. You're not just overhearing it. You're part of it. You have relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit directly. And that glorifies God because That's why he created us, so that we could have a relationship with him that deals with the deepest heart, deepest longings of our soul, so that we could really know him. See, eternal life is not fire insurance. Oh, yeah, I'll live forever. I have eternal life. It's something you enter into now when you commit your life to Christ. You have a relationship with him, and you begin experiencing it now. Will it go on forever? Sure. But it begins now so that when you die, you're just entering into a new phase of the same thing you've already been experiencing. That's why he created us, because he wanted us to be first-hand sharers, participants, in that love intimacy that the Trinity shares together. Third way that Jesus glorifies the Father is given in verse 4. He says this, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. By completing the work you gave me to do. Now think for a minute with me. Jesus has not gone to the cross yet. He hasn't died for us. And yet Jesus says, I finished it. I finished the work on earth you gave me to do. Yes, he will glorify the Father through the cross, but he says, I finished the work on earth you gave me to do. There's something about those three years, three and a half years that Jesus walked on earth that he had work to do, and he says, I've done it. Even before he'd gone to the cross. Otherwise, Jesus could have gone, come, be born, died for us, and that was the end, and, but he had something to do. Well, notice what he says in verse 6 through 8 what his task was that glorified the Father. I have revealed you, Father, to those who you gave me out of the world, the 11 disciples. The 11 disciples. Judas has already left. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know, Father, that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. 
They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. The Father is glorified by Jesus because Jesus finished his work, which was to pass on to the disciples everything he knew about the Father. He'd given them his words. He'd revealed them, manifested who the Father was to the disciples. Isn't that wonderful? And it's a wonderful picture for us, I think, of what we're called to do. Our lives can glorify the Father when we simply take what we know of Him as we get to know Him more and more day by day and we pass it on to other people. Just a few. You know, Jesus says, I completed the work you gave me to do, but you think about it, He was only here three years. He didn't heal everybody. He didn't save everybody. He didn't preach to everybody. Jesus, you didn't do a whole lot. But he says, what I did was accomplish exactly what the Father wanted me to do, which was invest my life in 11 men who would carry on the gospel. And that's our task. What glorifies the Father isn't big flashy programs and big wonderful uh, events and bringing celebrities to Christ and making getting Christians in the news and all that. No, what glorifies the Father is simply when we take what we've learned about the Father and invest it in other people. Just spend time with them and passing on what we know. We don't have to have it together. We don't have to know it all. We just pass on what He's given us. That's what Jesus' work was. That's what our work is. To make disciples, Jesus says. And that glorifies him in a marvelous, wonderful way. So Jesus' heart is to glorify the Father because he loves the Father so much. And he wants to pass on that very life to us. But it's going to come through the disciples. That's why we're all here, right? Because the disciples were faithful to pass on what Jesus gave to them. So Jesus now turns to pray for those 11 disciples to pray for what's really on his heart so that they might fulfill the task that they've been given to do. So let's look at it. He prays three things for them in verses 9 through 19. In first, the first one is in verses 9 through 12 where he prays that they would be kept or protected in the Father's name. Let me read those verses, 9 through 12. I pray for them, for the disciples. I am not praying for the world but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, Father, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. Do you get that? Through the disciples, glory has come through them. And Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer. I'm leaving. But they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, Protect them, and this is his request to the Father, protect them by the power of your name or in the power of your name or in your name more literally, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, Judas, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. This is his prayer. And notice he says in verse 10, glory comes to me through them. In other words, 
Jesus spends his life glorifying the Father. Now he says, okay, and now the disciples will bring glory to God as well. We'll reveal who he is. That's his plan. They're in the world living out eternal life. That's God's plan for us, that we live in the world in relationship with him, in living in that eternal life he's given us. And as we do, he gets glorified. But it's a dangerous place to be in the world, isn't it? And so he says, and he prays, Holy Father, protect them or keep them in your name. Keep them, protect them in your name. What does he mean by this? Well, to protect or guard, keep them safe within his name, within his authority, within his character. Keep us protected in him. So that we stay in the vine. We stay in relationship with Him. We keep drawing with Him and don't wander off. We, we, we stay close to Him. So that, notice what the result is, so that we might be one. What's he getting at here? Well, I picture it like a parent who's at the park and has a couple of kids running around at the park. And they're just having a good old time and they're playing on the playground equipment and they're playing in the grass and they're playing tag and running all over the place. And they're just having fun and they're free, right? But the parent is watching all the time. And as soon as they step into danger, out of the parent's sight or out of the parent's care, going out in the road or behind a building where the parent can't see them, they call them back. Stay, stay here, stay where I can see you, stay close. And they are both one because they're both under the protection of that parent. You see, that's the way God protects us, and that's what Jesus prays for the disciples and ultimately for us. Keep them in your name, keep them in your care, keep them in your love, keep them under your authority so they'll be safe, so they will be one. And what this says to me is, you know, if true Christians are not one, if they're divided, if they're fighting, then it means somebody's not staying under the Father's authority. It means someone's gone behind the building and is running away from the Father's leadership. But if we're under the Father's authority and we're all responding to Him, Lord, I'm listening to You and I'm responding to You, we will be one. It doesn't mean we all will think the same things or act the same things or be part of the same group or part of the same church or even part of the same denomination. But it means there'll be a oneness. You'll identify with people. I've had the most wonderful fellowship with people that came from groups far different than I've ever been a part of. Groups that you'd probably call cults. And yet, I sensed there was something about them that they were under the Father's authority, that they knew Him personally, they were committed to Him. Even though their doctrine maybe had been unbiblical, yet they were committed to Him. So, oneness comes not out of grouping together in, in big groups or somehow making sure we're cooperating all the time. Oneness comes from being under the Father's authority. So Jesus prays, Oh, keep them, Father, under your authority, in your name, so they might be one. Because that's what glorifies the Father, right? That's what glorifies God. The Trinity is perfectly one. 
What glorifies him? When we are one as well. More about that next week. (laughs) That's his first request. Keep them in your name. And notice what he says. Holy Father, that's the name he says. Holy, yet he's Father. He's pure, and yet he's an intimate Father who watches over us, cares for us, loves us. And so when we're with him, we're home. We're all part of the same family, and we're home. His second request comes in verses 13 through 19, where he prays this, I am coming to you now, Father, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, the disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Notice the theme Jesus keeps repeating. They're not of the world. (laughs) They're not of the world. They're not of the world. You see, as believers, we don't fit in this world, do we? We're not of the world. We've been called out of it. Our hearts... When we're given eternal life, we enter into relationship with the Trinity and that's where our life is. We're physically still in this world, but we're not of this world. And so that's really uncomfortable, being citizens of heaven. We don't like it. I've likened it before to to being engaged. It's uncomfortable to be engaged. Anybody engaged out there? (laughs) When you're engaged, you're, you're... You've committed yourself to this person. You've committed yourself to become one, but but you're not there yet. And so it's uncomfortable. You can't consummate the marriage and and really be one, and so it's uncomfortable. Or I liken it to moving to a new school when you're a kid, and you show up and you go, I don't know anybody. I don't fit here. I feel out of place. That's what it's like being a Christian in the world. We don't fit. We don't belong. We're out of place. But that's his design. You see, and part of us wants to leave, right? We'd rather just withdraw from the world so we don't have to feel uncomfortable. But notice Jesus' prayer in verse 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world. He wants us in the world, folks. But that you keep them or protect them from the evil one. Jesus doesn't want us to abandon the world to be taken out of it, although that would be more comfortable. He wants us in the world, but to be protected from the evil one, to know that, yeah, we'll experience everything the world throws at us. We'll experience the discomforts that everybody in the world lives in because this is a fallen world and people are selfish and it's, it's hard. And we get flat tires and natural disasters and financial struggles and we experience all of that that the world around us experiences and that's hard but jesus does not want us to therefore withdraw into our little christian worlds our subcultures to try to stay safe until he comes back he says i don't want you to take them out of the world father but i want you to protect them from the evil ones so that they won't be destroyed by the attacks of satan who would like try to undermine our faith accuse us lie to us deceive us ultimately destroy us. So Jesus prays that we, the disciples and us, would be kept safe from the attacks of the evil one. 
in the world, but not of the world. Because Jesus wants us in the world so that we can make a difference. And that's his third prayer request. Notice what he prays, verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be sanctified. So Jesus' prayer for the disciples and ultimately for us, that we'd be sanctified. Well, that's a big holy word, but what does that mean? Ultimately, it means to be set apart for God's service. To be set apart for God's service. To be set apart to build His kingdom. To be used for His purposes. That's what sanctify means. You see, we're left in this world. He says, don't take them out. We're left here so we could be part of God's plan for sharing eternal life in a dark and struggling world. So Jesus says, the disciples and us should be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, scattered throughout the world like lights, scattered throughout the darkness, bringing light to dark places, and each of us scattered out wherever God's placed us, but not of the world living differently so our light shines bright, living depending on the Father so our light shines bright, living within the Trinity and that relationship with Him so our light shines bright. Now, sometimes we get confused, and as Christians, we need to consider what do our lives look like? Are we in the world but not of it? Some other options if you take that little statement and turn it around. Too often we're in the world and of it, okay? And think for a minute with me what that would look like. You're in the world, you're scattered throughout the world as as believers, but you're of it. You look like everybody else. You live the same way. You have the same values. So what does that mean? Well, we're scattered throughout the world, but there's no light. There's no difference. That doesn't glorify the Father. So we need to ask ourselves, is that how we're living? I think too often, you know, I look at my life and I think, wow, am I really living just like everybody else in the world? And that's not good. That's not what God's called me to do. Or sometimes I think as believers, we're not in the world and we're not of it. In other words, we pull ourselves out from the world And we don't have any connection at all. And this is kind of the monastery, pious communities. You know, we're living a holy life, but we have no contact with the world. So it's like we're all grouped in one corner and our lights are shining bright, but nobody out there can see it. Another option, to be not in the world, but of it. And I think this is, the curse of American Christianity by and large. Not in the world, but of it. What does this mean? We pull back in our Christian subculture, but our Christian subculture looks just like the world around us. So the world out there has its music awards and its movies and its entertainment and its all of that stuff. And so we say, well, I'm not going to be of the world. So we come over and we make our own culture that looks exactly the same. And we end up being 
not in the world, but of it. It's not what God's called us to be. He's called us to an uncomfortable place, hasn't he? To be living our Christian lives, not like the world around us, but out there, scattered out there, where we are glorifying him because we shine in the darkness. We purposely at Cole limit the activities that we have as a church. And some people say, why don't you have more programs? Why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Why don't we purposely limit them. Why? Because we don't want to take time away where you're just in a Christian subculture all the time. We want you to come and get fed and grow, but then get out there. Live out your life wherever God's placed you, in your jobs, in your neighborhoods, in your families, in your schools, living for him. That's purposeful, folks, because that's what Jesus has called us to be, the light of the world. Why? Because his plan is to send us out into the world to change it, to undermine it, its darkness. We're to assault the powers of hell in people's lives. How? By glorifying the Father as we depend on him and live for him. We're ultimately to be like Rambo. We're not to hide in our Christian castles and be safe, because that's comfortable. We're to be Rambos who go out there doing guerrilla warfare, rescuing people who are held hostage to the God of this world as we live out our Christian lives. This passage tells us how to be sanctified, how to be set apart for his kingdom, to be useful to him. How do we do that? How do we live differently in the world? He tells us two things. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You've got to be in the Word, folks. You've got to be reading it and saying, Lord, change my life. And as you do that, you begin to live differently. Your light gets brighter as you read the Word and you depend on it as you study it in small groups and take what you hear Sunday morning and go live it out. And then secondly, he says, I, for them I sanctify myself, verse 19, that they may be truly sanctified We get sanctified because Jesus has set apart his life. He's living a separate life, and then he comes and indwells us. So as we depend on him, our lives shine brighter and brighter. So how do you sanctify? How are you sanctified? In the word, depending on Jesus, your light gets brighter as you live out in the uncomfortable world that he's placed us in. Let's step back for a minute. And look at the big picture. God from eternity past had a perfect relationship within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, an intimacy that's far beyond we can ev- what we can even imagine. But he said, you know what? This is too good. I've got to share it. <laughs> so I'm going to create, create humanity so that they can know this kind of intimacy too, so they can enter in and not be secondhand participants but first-hand participants but we sinned so jesus had to come and die to open up that door so he could give eternal life to us and we could again begin to experience first-hand intimacy with the father son and holy spirit so the disciples and us have now been chosen not to just experience that but to live it out in the world so that others will be drawn to him as well that they will want eternal life In fact, think of it this way. As you live out your life in relationship 
with the Godhead. And you're having a constant conversation with him on your spiritual cell phone, okay? Others around you will overhear. And they'll be drawn to what you have because they'll see something, they'll hear something, they'll observe something different as your light shines bright. And they'll say, I want that. I want that. What do you have? Because I want that. What a privilege we have to be those lights in the darkness. So catch a vision, folks, for being used of God, to being His guerrilla fighters in a world held hostage. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You that You have chosen in Your great love of us to share eternal life with us, to allow us to enter in firsthand into what it means to have a relationship with You, with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Lord, set us apart to know You and to live for You, to be lights in the darkness and remove those things that keep us from shining bright so others will want to come and know You as well. And Lord, as we take the offering now, I pray that you would help us see everything we have as a gift from you. Our time, our money, our health, our lives, everything we have. And we give back to you some of that now. We pray that you'd use it to further your kingdom, Lord, that your light would shine bright in this dark world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.